0: Welcome to Piecing It All Together. My name is Bo Sanders. And I'm Randy Woodley. We are piecing this all together with you. So well, Come on and join us. Today we're talking about different ways of knowing. In our recent book, I love saying that by the way, we talked about epistemology being the fancy word. And then we, uh, we thought we, we would spend a little time talking about different ways of knowing. I pissed on what? (laughs) Oh my. I didn't know it was going to be like that today. (laughs) (laughs) Epistemology. I think we better stop and explain that. Yeah, we will get there. Before we do, Uh, it's kind of weird that our book came out right during this, uh, time of social isolation and we haven't been able to promote it like we had planned at our different events that you were going to be speaking at and that we were going to be at together. So it's been really strange, but I wanted to say thank you to our friends who have been posting pictures of them receiving our book in the mail. I've had people post in New York and Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, California, California, and Oregon, Alberta, Wisconsin. So I wanted to say thank you. Uh, Even though it's been a really strange time to have a book come out, it's been so uh, encouraging actually for our friends to let us know that they are getting their books in the mail.
1: Yeah, I think there was a a pretty much an an initial run on books that Wiffenstock maybe didn't expect uh, right there at the very beginning when it first came out. I don't know how it's going now, but I know that a whole lot of them uh, start flying out the
0: doors right in the first week. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And it really makes my, my heart warm uh, that somebody takes the time to post a picture of them holding the book and uh, to know that they're going to be reading this and then sort of imagining them in dialogue with us and waiting for, for them to give feedback. And I've, got, I've even had a couple friends call me uh, to have a follow-up conversation about that. So this is a, a brand new experience for me, and I'm really enjoying it. Do we know anybody who's actually read through the book yet? <laughs> One of your former students, Josh, uh, has actually finished the book. So I got to talk with him about it. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to some folks about this thing. Uh-huh. Because, you know, Me just, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, for those of you who uh, are tuning in, we want to say thank you. And um, if you enjoy this conversation today... Uh, go ahead and share it uh, widely. I know that people are looking for different things to do or to listen to, um, to take their mind off of the virus and the lockdown uh, situation. And so we've been wanting to do an episode on different ways of knowing. So I'm excited to do this. If you did, if you missed the last episode, it was actually of Randy and I at an event, in an interfaith event in Portland talking about why eleven fifty nine, why the anxiety, uh, in the subtitle of the book. Why why is it eleven fifty nine? And I think that episode turned out really uh I liked it.
1: Yeah, I was happy with that. I I I just wish more people could listen to it because uh to it, it it's the kind of thing that invites them into a
0: conversation, which is yeah. what we like to be about. Agreed. And then uh, we also want to make sure that everybody knows that we have uh, another installment of our book discussion group. It's going to be uh, in two Tuesdays at 530. I'll be putting a Facebook event up and letting all of our Patreon supporters know uh, to come in and join us. For that conversation, but we are reading a chapter four and five in Richard Twist's book, Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. So, if you want to join in that conversation, go ahead and jump right in. But ch- I'll just be forewarned, chapter four is a doozy,
1: yeah. So, um, it's not that like people have a lot of other places to go right now,
0: so. <laughs> that's true, <laughs> true. Uh, yeah. I hope that they do read and uh, come ready to chat with us about that. So I'm enjoying that book discussion very much and uh, the different voices that we have coming in and lending their insights and perspectives. I'm, I'm really enjoying that a lot.
1: Yeah. And you know, what's helpful is when people come uh, with questions. So our, our, uh, Uh, our last group there's several great questions that we're asking and we want you to read and to come in and ask some questions honest questions Mm. questions that you don't know the answer to questions that aren't just trying to get us or someone to agree with you and let's let's explore some of this stuff that's how we learn from one another
0: yeah and the thing i like about this book um is that you know, in every chapter I come away with so many questions just because the content, um, is, is thick. I mean, it is chocked full of, uh, I mean, it's not fluffy writing. And so I, I come away with more questions from every chapter. So, yeah. and then the last thing Randy, I wanted to ask you about before we get into epistemology is, um, Your Lenten devotional, are you getting good feedback on that? Um, I had a lot of people who downloaded I mean, I think
1: it got over a thousand downloads. Oh, wow. But uh, I haven't gotten much feedback. You know, I've seen people say, I I enjoyed it, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But, um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of a feedback guy. I like to see uh, if it's reaching its intended purpose. which is to really get people sort of outside and appreciating what Creator is doing and has done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'm reading through it with my congregation. And so in our online meetings every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, we read a portion of it for that day's reading, and I'm getting great feedback on it. It's really causing people, uh, challenging them to think differently, especially in this time of sort of societal gridlock and breakdown uh, to really think differently about our relationship to creation.
1: Yeah. I'm, you know, uh, I'm actually taking it now and um, the idea and uh, working it into a a book. Uh, Oh, so it's a, it's a journey with creation, a hundred days of indigenous inspiration, something like that. Oh, wow. I've got a publisher looking at it right now and, And uh, so I've been coming up with a whole lot more. That was that we had to do that really quick, and so it's mostly things from other books and blogs and everything like that. But uh, but uh, there's a lot more that I wanted to do with that. So uh, hopefully, uh, I should find out this week if uh, the publisher who has it right now is going to accept it or not.
0: Interesting. Well, I would love
1: my uh, my children's books uh, are with a. Uh, being looked at at a publisher right now to uh, try and do the harmony tree trilogy. And, um, so I'm, I'm hoping
0: that comes out too, because I think those are three really important books. So. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Wow. Congratulations. I'm, I hope some of that comes to, to, to fruition.
1: Well, if they don't want them, somebody else will.
0: <laughs> that's true. It's true. So in, um our conversations and this showed up in uh, our book, we talk about different ways of knowing or epistemology, uh, specifically very concerned about the scientific or the Western assumption of, uh, that there's only one sort of met way of knowing. And yeah, you know, I, I got to stop you here. Um,
1: when we were in seminary together, or not seminary, but our doctoral studies at uh, 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 Asbury, yeah. um, we learned that word epistemology. Yeah, I heard yeah. it before. I heard it used, and you know, but you kind of think, oh, you know, it's some fancy word that means something. And so we really had to examine that. You know, there's a lot of lot of fancy words that people use in uh, those ivory towers that, yeah. that other people just don't use or get. And if you use them, you know, it's like code for, I'm a smart person. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was thinking uh, about some of the ways in, in this, I, I, you know, a lot of people may not know that I'm actually from the South um, and I have Southern roots. And even just saying that you can hear my, my accent change. Yeah, right yeah. <laughs> but I just wanted to, there's a couple of these terms. I just wanted to, Kind of given a southern vernacular, if I could. Okay. So I thought of some some ways we say this in the South. Some all right, I'm interested. For all this fancy talk that yeah, know, in those ivory towers, and so you know, we start with that one epistemology, right? Yeah. So, uh, so someone wants to know about someone's epistemology, what they say is, "How do we know?" Yeah. How do we know? <laughs> And uh, and then another related term is your ontology, right? And and in ontology, they they'll say something like, "Well, he's all about something," and that something that's your ontology, right? Oh. He's all about something. And then there's pedagogy, right? That's that you know everybody knows what pedagogy is. It's that catching your learnings.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love right, it. I think We can move on from here. That is a. I love it. A, a folksy introduction.
1: We got to get everybody caught up. Yeah. I love Nobody it. has to study for a PhD anymore. <laughs> That's
0: right. So, Randy, you and I uh, have several ways of knowing that we find legitimate we think are very valid, that would not fit into a scientific Western worldview. And, uh, and I, I've been looking forward to telling you some stories and asking you some questions. And so uh, I want to make everyone a promise today. If you're listening to this episode, I, I, I want to say uh, three things. Number one, I'll bet you will learn something new. Number two, I'll bet you'll find something you really like and number three, I'll bet there's going to be something you really don't like. <laughs> <laughs> They're going, I don't like this whole thing already. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my, uh, that's my sort of money back guarantee on today. You're going to hear something new. You're going to find something you like, and you're going to find something you don't like. That's, that's my anticipation.
1: <laughs> All right, let's talk about how we don't.
0: All right. So when you think about ways of knowing, um, especially from an indigenous perspective, there are some um, modes or permissions or expectations that usually get labeled cultural. Well, that's their culture, but that I think fall into a broader category of Um, being embodied, like being in the human experience, being part of creation. And in the Western worldview that gets parsed out and made into a different category. And in, in that category, you can't trust those things. So there's ways of knowing that you can trust and are valid. And then there's sort of other ways. And those get labeled like superstitious or mystical, or we love to label them and discount them. So I just wanted to uh, ask you, when, when you think about um, ways of knowing, what kind of things come to your mind?
1: Well, I think there's a number of things that may uh, have different priorities in uh, indigenous culture than Western culture. Um, one of them, of course, is story, narrative. Mm as opposed to creating extrinsic categories and making propositional lists. So um, that's a, you know, uh, there's that. There's the, the whole idea of separating the experience from the knowledge of. Mm. That's a really important uh, uh, issue to talk about here. So in um, uh, any good learning system is going to involve doing at the same time yeah and uh whereas the whole western educational uh, enterprise is set up on filling your mind with the right stuff and mm-hmm. then maybe going out and doing it um right and uh, i just think that's a very inefficient way to to learn um uh, so we call i guess you'd call it something like a, a journeyman um mm. or an apprentice or something like that Where you are under a master and, uh, and even though you, um, you don't know everything, they don't make you feel like you don't know everything, Uh. but sort of are testing both your character and your patience and your ability to listen. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think that's, uh, so, and then listening of course is the key, right? So, You've heard me tell the story, I'm sure, about, uh, you know, Dan Rather's interview with Mother Teresa. And and he asked Mother Teresa, you know, um, what do you say to God when you talk to God and when you pray? And she says, uh, I listen. And he says, well, then what does God say? She said, he listens. And I think that that listening is uh, sort of the, that kind of listening is perhaps the key to.
0: Understanding. Yeah. So it's a it's a posture. It's a way to start. Yeah, I love that you talk about practice because one of the things that many of us have inherited is this the the distinction between theory and practice or what you know and what you do, and you know those are problematic uh, either or uh, categories the the way that they come to us, and so. Uh, When you separate theory and practice or knowing and doing, you are creating uh, these two silos. And when they don't uh, overlap and and, and inform each other, um, there's a real problem uh, that comes in. And so at the end, I hope that we talk about uh, embodied ways of knowing, like that are built into the, the actual cells of our being. But I wanted to tell you a couple stories first. Uh, I told you these stories ten years ago, and I haven't. Uh, we haven't talked about them since. But I had two. Okay,
1: yeah. I just wanted to, to make an axiom. I just thought of an axiom. Oh, all right, it's in the last thing you said. Then you can tell your story. Okay. All right. So, so here's the axiom: you can't know without doing. <laughs> but you can do without knowing.
0: Ooh. Huh, all right. Axiom for the day you can do without knowing. Ah, that's really interesting. So it's it, yeah. So it's sort of a lopsided relationship in that one doesn't necessarily lead to the other, and the other is not dependent on the first. That's so
1: another person said it this way. I uh, maybe they copied me. I don't know. Actions speak louder than
0: words. <laughs> 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 I just thought that. Uh, yeah <laughs> you trademarked <laughs> copyrighted um, so when I lived in upstate New York uh I was trying to become uh, more in touch with creation, and part of that was becoming like an outdoorsman fishing and hunting and uh, growing my own food and um it, it was a great season of my life but I had some very interesting experiences during that season. One of them was uh, uh, I decided that I wanted to only live on meat that either I had harvested or I knew who did. And so, uh, whether that was fishing, but I also uh, learned to hunt. And when I took my first deer, uh, I had never done anything like that before. I don't. I don't know that I had uh, intentionally killed another living thing. And it was a very strange experience. And when I had the buck down in the woods and I it was time to field dress it, I really didn't know what I was doing. So I decided to walk back and get my neighbor and have him come show me how to do it. Cause I had only sort of read about it. I didn't, you know, I I knew conceptually what I wanted to do, but when you actually have something that's nearly as big as you are laying on the ground, it's a whole different ballgame if you've never, you know, gotten inside the hide and try and get the organs out, you know? So I was going to walk back to get my neighbor and I started, started second guessing myself, like maybe I, maybe, you know, what am I doing? Am I the type of person that should be doing something like this, you know, I was like sort of self doubt and this little peregrine falcon, this tiny little bird swoops down about 10 feet in front of my face, comes right across my face and grabs a little mouse that had been rummaging around in the leaves on the forest floor and grabs it and picks it up and flies away with it. Mm -hmm. And I felt like Creator was speaking to me and saying, "This is how things work." Yeah, that you're part of this system, this of nature, Mm -hmm. and it really spoke to me, and it calmed me, and it actually empowered and affirmed me that I was entering into um, a circle. Right of a, a, a food chain that previously I had sort of been outside of and would outsource and just reach in and pluck things out as needed, but that now I had entered into the the forest
1: yeah, I mean it, it, killing's always a sad thing, right yeah. um, uh, but it's the way that things work, it's the way things go on,
0: yeah. you have to
1: kill a plant to eat it. Um, people don't think about that. Plant's a living thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so uh, I, th- I, but I thought where you're going with the story was that the peregrine falcon came down and picked the buck up and took off with it.
0: <laughs> no, no, not one of those stories. Okay. But, you know, anytime I've ever <laughs> tried to tell someone that story about the, the little bird coming across my face, uh, it's amazing how how many people you can tell want to say like, well, that's a neat story, but it's sort of coincidence or, I you mean, know. it's, it's nice that you can find meaning in it. When, <laughs> I <told> that, <laughs> oh, <laughs> when I told that story to you, you were the first person that validated a, that really? that, yeah. Well, well it, was, it was also like 12 years ago, but. This is, you're learning naturally. That's all. I know Randy, you were the first person that validated that not only was that experience real, but that was a message.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a message. I mean, this is what it's all about. We, we learn from creation. That's the, our first teacher. Mm. Creation is our first teacher. And Mm. uh, Mm. you know, if you believe in creator, creator set it up to be that way. Mm. So um, you know, it's, it's just like simple. That's what all Indigenous people know, and everybody's Indigenous from somewhere at one time. I yeah. mean, you lived in a particular place with a particular group, and you learn the land that you were yeah. on. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a simple Indigenous lesson that that uh, yeah. you know for people to for something to live, something else has got to die. Wow, and it's a shame, um, but there's all kinds of parameters within that respect and dignity and, and, um, uh, uh, regenerative ideas and, and sustenance and, and, uh, you know, not commodification and and not consumerism and you take what you need and what your family needs and you leave some for others, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's not just like, oh, well, they got to go kill something. That's, yeah. that's not what it's about. Yeah. Every time you pick pick a, uh, uh, oh, whatever, onion, a turnip, whatever, you're taking a life. Yeah. But you're thankful for that life, and, and, and that thing sustains you, and you don't misuse it or waste it or anything.
0: Mm-hmm. So in that same window of time, you told me a story about um, – a time when humans had gotten really sick. They weren't um, living in harmony with the land and they had gotten really sick. And that a dream played an important part where the plants, if you, did you remember this story? Yeah, it's a story, a Cherokee story of uh, how disease and medicine came into the world. Yeah. Can you tell a little bit of it? Cause I think that dreams are a way of knowing that some people chalk up to something else and say it's not a valid way of knowing but you and i have both had dreams
1: yeah yeah sure i'll tell that story uh so i'm going to tell a very uh, abbreviated version of that story so um the idea is that human beings at one time were um began to take uh the animals for granted and Uh, and so they would only take the parts that they like the best and leave the rest to rot and not use every part of it and all that sort of thing and then the the animals all get together and counsel and they decide you know that what they're going to do is to to put disease on the human beings and that will teach them a lesson and so so they end up uh, the human beings would start to, to die and you know, they start losing uh, the, the children and the old people, and and then the the men, and then finally the very strong women, and uh, and they realize that we're not going to be around anymore, and so so they go to the animals and they plead with them, but the animals say no, nope, we don't forgive you, we're not going to let up, and and all this time the plant people were watching, and so the plants got together in their council and they decided that they would help the humans and. And so the way that they did that was that they came to the humans in a dream and they told them how to use the different plants for medicines. And uh, and then they came back together after the people were healed. The plants and the animals and the the humans all came together and decided that uh, from now on there would be protocol, basically what we call respect and protocol. And every time something's taken, tobacco would be put down Tobacco would be uh, given to the earth to give something back. That animal would be thanked um, and every part would be used that can be used. And so um, and and that's how uh, often our medicine people say that that they learn about plant medicines is that they become so familiar with that that plant that it begins to speak to them in their dreams and uh, and then tells them more of the secrets of the plants.
0: I, I love hearing you tell that story because it makes my brain work in an entirely different way. And to think, what would you, how would you need to experience and participate with the world that plants could speak to you in your dreams about their healing properties?
1: Yeah. Well, I've had a plant dream. Yeah. I'm not going to share it right now. Okay. I'll just tell you that it's probably the most primordial dream I've ever had.
0: Okay. Well, the reason I bring this up is because... I've had animal
1: dreams, too, where animals, animals talk to me as well. But, but uh, and, and I learned lessons um, through those, but, but nothing like this plant dream.
0: So in this same window of time that my falcon story happens my little hawk. Uh, I had a dream where uh, I f- feel like my spirit left my body, that I did soul flight. And it's the only time it's ever happened in my life. But it was very significant because I lived in a place called Saratoga Springs, New York, where the Springs are are legendary for their healing properties. Some are mineral springs, some are hot springs. Um, And I would actually go and drink from the 10 springs and invite health and wholeness into my body. I was really committed that this place I lived in was a special place and that the water that came up through the earth brought nourishment and nutrients with it. Right. Yeah. And so I was really, really into Springs and actually I was a pastor at the time. I would often preach about the Springs as sort of a a way of life and even the historical legacy of Saratoga Springs back when it was 10 Springs um, before the Europeans came and uh, that it, it was a safe zone. Uh, There was no war to be uh, made there. There was a place of healing where people could soak in the Springs and injured people and sick people. All right. So I loved the Springs. So I have this dream where I feel like I experienced soul flight and I was led uh, my house backed onto um, thousands of acres of state land. And I was led in my sleep up this trail where there was this natural spring that was bubbling up underneath the root of this tree. So I decided, I thought about it for a couple days and then I decided I'm going to walk up there and see if there's a spring, right? If that was more than just a dream. So I hiked up there and Randy, right as rain, man, that spring was exactly where I had seen it in my dream. cool! And I would go up there and I would cut my hands and I would take a big drink of that water because I felt like I had been led there by spirit. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a great experience. Well, not everyone likes that story, though. (laughs) When I tell that story, I'm often people will try and explain it away and say, well, maybe you had walked up there before and seen that spring and then like forgotten it. Or like they try and justify it in some way because the, because in that Western worldview dreams are not a valid way of knowing that, right and that can't be a place of revelation
1: so their story um, and this is typical colonial pattern right the Western scientific story must be an overlay over the as a template over yeah. the more natural or indigenous or most reasonable explanation, actually. But, um, but, but the, the others, they think is rational, but it really isn't rational. Um, it's reductive. It, it, so, so their story is better than your story. Their,
0: their right. story is more, has to be more right. And that, that's a very colonial pattern. But it's in the telling of stories that worldviews are exposed. Exactly. That's how you really think the world works... So sometimes when you hear a story from whether it's a different culture or someone's a different religious tradition or someone else's experience, uh, especially if it's regional uh, and in your mind, you're thinking, I don't know, there's something, there's something about this story that doesn't quite sit right with me. And it's in that process of hearing the narrative that your view of the world is shown.
1: Right. And, and, of course, this comes directly out of the Enlightenment, right? Yep. So this idea that, that, that uh, this uh, human reason is um, a better way, you know, and this is hierarchical now, right? A better way to explain what is rational than yep. things that we can't quite explain. So it leaves no room for mystery, Is part of what we call, uh, from the Enlightenment, gut theory, grand unifying theory, which says that human beings can explain everything. Yeah. Um, It's just, you just got to give them enough time, get enough people together, and every problem can be solved, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's no room for mystery. There's no room for limitedness of being human, right? And and, and so it's really a a sickness um, that is uh, missing so much of life.
0: Yeah, it's a it it really is uh amazing how that worldview and and you talk about that. So it often gets pinned on this guy named Rene Descartes, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) Ah, you're man, you were on a roll today. So his famous thing, uh, (laughs) is I I think, therefore I am. That's how it often gets translated. But it's actually more like, I doubt, therefore I am. And he had this, he had this thing where he you know, doubted his way down to the lowest common denominator. This is that reductive, that reduced thing that I'm talking about, where you doubt your way down to the lowest common denominator, and that's called the foundation, right? And so once you have a solid foundation, then you can construct a worldview or a a theory or a way of life or an organization, an institution on that. So this is, this is how we get foundationalism. And this is what the Western way of knowing is based on doubting yourself down to the lowest common denominator. So when I tell that story about soul flight and the spirit leading me to the spring, Mm -hmm. The Western mind wants to doubt its way down out of that story, and then find something you can't doubt, which is I, I found the spring. Right, that's the thing that can't be doubted, and then build back up a different story, which is, well, maybe you'd seen that before, and you, you know, but then you forgot, and then in your subconscious, it showed up later, like to, to tell right a really elaborate maybe story. Somebody told you about it, or right, yeah, right, silly stuff. So. So what I would say is that you had
1: built a relationship up with the waters, and then the waters spoke to you and said, "We're going to share something with you."
0: Yeah. Oh, this is fun stuff to talk about. You ever seen that movie "Australia?": Yeah, with Nicole Kidman. Yeah. You know my, my favorite part little, of the that- uh, Aboriginal boy.: Yeah. My favorite part of that movie that no one ever talks about is how his grandfather sang his way across the land and he knew where to turn because his song was the map. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a, that's a different way of knowing song. You know, my, my grandmother used to have something like that where, uh, you knew how long to churn the butter by singing a song. Right? Uh, like a, that's like a
1: different way of knowing a song. More like how many times you sing it through. <laughs> right. Right.
0: <laughs> uh, and, uh, and there was another thing I wanted to run by you, um, which is neither Western European nor indigenous, but is actually ancient Greek and, uh, I've come to get a lot out of it, so I wanted to run it past you and see if, if anybody else thought it was a helpful thing. Okay. So, you know, the ancient Greeks thought a lot about thinking. <laughs> that was, a, you know, the origins of philosophy. So they, they spent a lot of time on, on different types of knowledge. And I've become fascinated with different, uh, trans, the ways that they're Greek words have come into English. So like techne was a technical knowledge. So that came into English and theoria, right? It was theory, and that came into English, but there are other words that didn't come into English. And those are the ones that really uh, fascinate me. So the two I wanted to tell you about one is called poiesis. It's a Greek word that it's the knowledge to bring something to completion. And so if you're roofing a house, You know, it's that final row that you put on that means that your house won't leak, right? So poiesis is like really important, but it's also um, an expertise that says, uh, there's a confidence that says this thing has been brought. So it's, it's how you know when dinner, if you cooked an elaborate dinner, it's how you know when to, right, pull it out of the oven and serve it when it's done. That's, so there's a, There's an embodied way of knowing that when you practice something over and over again, you know how to bring it to completion. And it's not something that you can, you know, just know from reading about it. It's something that has to be put into practice. So I love this word poiesis. I I find a lot of joy in when somebody knows how to do something in a way that brings it to its fullness there's a there's a satisfaction in that because it's it's a different way of knowing. They know how to put together all of the individual parts and bring something into its completeness. I find a real joy in that.
1: Yeah. What, what's the so there's a, a Greek word for perfect? Is it to Um Or oh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the um, so so that means to bring to completion, right? Okay. Now, I don't think it, it has to do with the what has gone on before then as much, um, but it, it means like it's the, one of the words for perfect. And, hmm. you know, I know in the Western sort of idea of perfection is without flaw. Yeah. And, and I think this is more of uh, a more correct interpretation of this word is um, to, uh, to bring it to its completion or its finish. Huh. So it sounds okay. to me like it's maybe a little bit similar to that. Um which is uh you know a good thing. The only thing it's funny. Um there's there's two words I also learned uh when I was doing my PhD that I didn't had never put together before, but they kept telling us that, that we needed a lot of epistemological humility.
0: <laughs> I love it. Actually Go ahead. Epistemological humility is a beautiful thing. It is, yes, I guess. If I say I have it, I probably don't. So,
1: <laughs> so uh, um, in, in, in that sort of epistemological humility, we have to leave room for the fact that we are just human beings. We are limited in our knowledge. Yeah. And even how we know we're limited um, in these ways that we're talking about. And so there are things that happen within certain uh, cultures, like, for example, in the Navajo culture, Uh, when uh, a a woman, if she's a rug maker, she deliberately leaves, uh, makes a mistake in that so that there's not too much pride given, right? So that there's that humility. Um, If, uh, I remember I was putting the fence up with a guy one time and he was a very Western dude and, uh, uh, and he wanted to be exactly straight. And I said, no, 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 that's not the Indian way. And he goes, "What do you mean it's not the end anyway?" And I said, "We don't want to be too perfect, or, or you know, we'll we'll get prideful about
0: it." You know?
1: <laughs> and he just cracked up; he couldn't believe that people actually believe this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. But it's it's more about function
0: in the indigenous way than it mm. is, I guess, form. Mm. You know? Yeah. So, so there's one other Greek word I wanted to tell you about because it has become probably my favorite uh, concept uh, that, I, that I've discovered recently. So there's a word called phronesis, P-H-R-O-N-E-S-I-S, phronesis. And it. I'm sad that this word didn't come into English, but it's interesting uh, when you find out what it is, that we don't have something like it. And I think that we are poorer for it. So phronesis is an embodied wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you uh, are, I know you're a musician. So if you uh, play the guitar or the violin or the flute, you know, you know where to put your fingers and how hard to press and, you know, when to breathe and how to right draw breath in certain places and, you have a, if you're putting a bow across the strings, you know how hard to press and how quickly to draw back. There's all of that knowledge is in your body because you have practiced body memory. Body memory. So, yeah, muscle memory, like for athletes. But this word, phronesis, is a, a knowledge that uh, through practice has gotten down into the cells, the bones of your body. It's like how a mom knows how to hold a baby when they're nursing and still do something with the other hand, that if you were to hand a baby to me, I would have, I would have two hands on the baby and I wouldn't be able to do anything else because I'm unpracticed, right? I don't have phronesis. Uh, if you teach a kid to drive, they don't have phronesis. Everything is in the front register of their brain. They're trying to 10 and 10 and two and right.
1: Uh, wait, I, I just stop you right there. So. Yeah. So you made a mistake. Okay. You said a, while a woman's holding her baby and doing yeah. something else. The actual truth is
0: while a woman's holding a baby and doing four other things. Yeah, <laughs> True. That is true. So um, one of the things that I have had fun with when I've been talking with people about uh, phronesis and how, so I, I love to tell people you have a knowledge down in the cells of your body that you don't even know how to access sometimes, right? It's an embodied wisdom. So how I've figured out uh, to get to this is, you remember Donald Rumsfeld? Sure. So he came up with this thing, uh, the known knowns, the known unknowns, the things we know we don't know and the unknown unknowns, the things we don't know, we don't know. Right. Is
1: this when he was trying to explain collateral damage or what?
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. But I listened to this philosopher whose last name is Zizek and he says, no, no, no. The he set up a four categories, but he forgot to say the fourth, the fourth category is the unknown knowns, the things we don't even know we know. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to your axiom earlier. You can do without thinking, right? You don't always. You can do without knowing. Do without knowing. That's the, the, that category of the unknown knowns, the things you don't even know, you know. Yeah. Zizek said that. Yeah. He added the fourth category to Rumsfeld's three. All right. Yeah. So as we close up our time, uh, I would love to hear from listeners about ways of knowing, maybe uh, from their uh, families or their traditions or their cultures or their religious perspectives or their uh, practice of uh, experience of being human. I would love to talk about different ways of knowing. But even just in this conversation that you and I have been having, I mean, we've put all sorts of data into the mix that um, normally doesn't get included in valid ways of knowing, you know, cause you have the five senses, you know, and your sensory perception can be a way of knowing and you have book learning.
1: Yeah. But, but there's, you've heard of Gardner's multiple intelligences, Gardner's multiple
0: intelligences.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so there's a dude named Gardner. And, and I think he was at Harvard, but I can't remember. Uh, I think Harvard had something to do with this. And he developed a, a, a set of, um, and I can't, re- again, remember the details right now, maybe a dozen different intelligences. And oh. it, the whole thing was he was saying, you know, we, we, we only use like three or four in the education process. And yet uh, yeah. people are gifted with multiple intelligences. So some, some would be like, you know, artistic. Um, some would be poetic. Some would be, um, uh, you know, sensory. Uh, some would be, um, you know, like you, were, uh, you just, and I can't remember them all right now. I wasn't prepared to talk yeah. about this, but, but, you know, um, I'll just give you an example where I use this. Uh, my son, one of my sons was in third grade, it was Redbird. And, um, and this was, we were having what's called an IEP, an individual education plan. And they were saying, well, he's behind in a number of things. And, uh, um, you know, so he's going to need remediation and this and that. And, and I said, um, how many of you know Gardner's uh, theory of multiple intelligences? And the, the only one in the room was the, the counselor who was in there. And I said, well, why don't you explain to them what it is? And then she said, well, it's that that basically um, students have a lot more different intelligence that are utilized than and I said, let me ask you a question. Does my son ever in the middle of class and he's called on tell stories? And the, one of her teachers said, yeah, he, he does that. We love his stories. Robert tells great stories, you know. And I said, well, that is an intelligence. But you don't grade on that. You're only choosing to grade on the certain things that, that uh, you think are important. But there's a lot of intelligence going around your room that you're missing. And I would just challenge you to start looking for that. Mm. So lots of ways of knowing.
0: Interesting stuff, man. You know, uh, I've been looking forward to just comparing notes with you and uh, picking your brain and uh, bringing you, telling you about some stuff I've been thinking about lately. um, Especially, knowing that, uh, that we were going to be recording. I've been, you know, watching different news stories or listening to my friends, um, and thinking about all of the different ways that we come to know things and that what's, what's valid in our culture and what's not. And, uh, I would just love, uh, people join in the conversation and let us know their thoughts, um, what did we not cover that would be good to cover? What do we need to go back and say more about maybe when we weren't clear enough? Um, but this is a really fun conversation. Yeah, I just want to say one more axiom. I thought of another one. Yeah. All right. <laughs>
1: uh, and, and I don't know why they're all coming out today, but, uh, but, but I was just thinking about the, what you're talking about is if, if you have knowledge that is theoretical and it can't be used if it's not actionable, yeah then it can't be wisdom. right Wisdom is something that actually works in life right and helps others to work in life. And, and so um, maybe what we're also talking about is, is how you gain wisdom is mm. by sorting through that all these different kinds of knowledges and deciding what is appropriate for what situation. And maybe that's
0: what wisdom is. Mm. And you know, not. there's a lot of data that leads to wisdom that isn't measurable or quantifiable. And so I just want to make sure that that is accounted for and attended to. That it informs us and it directs our lives. And it really does make us into, it, it helps us to have the experience that we have of being human but it can't be measured or you know put into 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 digits and so we have to have multiple ways of knowing to be a well-rounded human
1: yeah somebody said something like buy your fruit their fruits you'll know them um, yeah. some dude long time ago yeah. and uh, And maybe that that is that uh, the idea of uh, if knowledge produces something good, then it's, you know, Mm. it's wise. But if it's not,
0: it should be just discarded, probably. Mm. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening in. If you'd like to support us, please go to Patreon. I'll link to it in the show notes. We are very grateful for our Patreon supporters who help us uh, host this conversation. Share this episode. Listen to it with your friends online and uh, let us know what you think. Peace out, my friends.